0: Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 122. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash doubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. All right, so first up, I'll take care of the shout-outs. I'd like to thank April Poff for liking the Weekends Out Facebook page. Appreciate it very much. Uh, I'd also like to do some Twitter shout-outs. Atheism is winning. All right, he followed. I remember uh, giving his book a shout-out. Uh, insanely Profane, Virginia Dawn, Oh Skeptical Me, Once a Believer, Buddha Teachings. Yep, I'm a non-believer, but I still got love for the Buddha. And Godless TV. All right. So if you're a regular listener, then you probably remember a story I covered recently concerning the persecution of the Iraqi religious minority known as the Yazidi by the terrorist group ISIS, also known as ISIL, uh, which stands for, I believe, Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Yeah, okay. Well, as you're probably aware, ISIS has been in the news again. This time for the horrific beheading of two American journalists. First, they beheaded James Foley a couple of weeks back, I think it was, and then very recently they also beheaded Stephen Sotloff. And at the end of the James Foley video, uh, they had threatened at the time that they were going to behead uh, Stephen Sotloff next. And Unfortunately, this is nothing new. Islamic extremists have been using beheading as a kind of terror tactic for a while now. Just last year in Great Britain, two extremist converts brutally attacked a 25 year old soldier named Lee Rigby, nearly severing his head outside of his uh, military barracks that, in the, the barracks were in a uh, basically in a populated civilian area, I believe. And those of us who are old enough will probably remember when back in 2002, journalist Daniel Pearl was murdered by al-Qaeda via beheading. Then Nick Berg was killed in a similar manner in 2004. And there's been a string of victims of varying nationalities beheaded by terrorist fanatics uh, since then. And uh, in the cases of Nick Berg and Daniel Pearl, as well as the recent cases of James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, as well as several others, the grisly executions have been videotaped and released online. And I think that makes it much more horrific, uh, when it's not just some horrible anecdote you're hearing, but the images are there on the net. Images of real-life human beings like you and me, brutally killed in barbaric fashion. And by the way, I mean, I probably don't have to say it, um, but I would advise against seeking out such images, especially if you're squeamish or easily disturbed. I've seen stuff like that before, and even recently, while researching the stories of James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, I ran across uh, a couple of uncensored images And believe me, you probably don't want that stuff floating around in your noggin. Um, I don't mean to make light of uh, anything with my kind of colorful speech there. But whenever I encounter one of these stories, like most people, I feel sickened and outraged. And I always wonder how could a human being do that to another human being? What would make someone think it was all right to end someone else's life, let alone in such a barbaric way? And being the person I am, a non-believer who is nevertheless fascinated by religion, I can't help but wonder what, if any, part does religion play in all of this? So that's what I want to do today. I want to, in a hopefully fair and objective manner, try to suss out what role religion has in driving someone to commit such an atrocious act of human evil. And I say human evil because I don't believe in or I doubt the existence of spiritual or supernatural evil. I think the gut reaction is to blame Islam, and I do think religion plays a part, just as religious ideology plays a part in someone's decision to bomb an abortion clinic or to refuse their child much-needed medical care because they believe prayer will suffice. I suppose the question is, once again, how much of a role does religion play? It's funny. I'm a Marilyn Manson fan. Uh, Maybe you would have trouble imagining that, but I am. Uh, And I remember once watching or listening to a Stephen King interview and he was talking about and it might have been in the wake of Columbine or something like that how he doesn't believe that listening to Marilyn Manson albums or reading one of his books can make a young kid kill someone, but he does believe they can sort of act as accelerants, kind of like adding fuel onto a pre-existing fire. I think there's some truth in that, and it probably applies to religion, too. The Bible and the Quran are both books that not only contain contradictions, but also contain their fair share of deity-prescribed violence. And yet the average believer doesn't go around killing people. But take a person who's looking for a sense of purpose or belonging, or who has pre-existing violent or sociopathic tendencies, and add a helping of groupthink and extremist ideology, and you just might end up with someone who's willing to kill for God or their concept of God. Um, and I'm sure in some cases, indoctrination from an early age probably does wonders as well. Uh, so religion probably isn't the only factor that leads someone to engage in extremist violence, such as the beheading of hostages, but it probably plays some part. Um, and just to interrupt myself for a minute, I've talked about this on the show before, how I believe inherently um, We're kind of a mixed bag morally. I think we're wired by evolution to be tribal and petty. And also we're wired to have this great capacity for empathy and compassion too. And if you look at our closest animal cousin, the chimpanzee, you can see that embodied in them, how on the one hand, they live in these very social familial groups they groom one another they cooperate even share uh kind of child-rearing responsibilities etc but at the same time there's a very dark side to chimp behavior too i remember jane goodall spoke about how shocked she was when she first realized this dark side there's instances of infanticide and cannibalism um the strong penchant for tribalism where sometimes a band of male chimps will chase down a lone male from another band and basically um, rend and beat him to death. Um, So I think if we could flip a magical switch and make it so religion never existed or religion no longer existed, I think there would still be human tribalism. I think people would still fight and kill over land and resources, over political ideologies. Um, So I don't think religion is the only factor. But that being said, what does the Quran have to say about beheading your enemies, if one can really call innocent hostages enemies? Well, often Islamic fanatics and Islamophobes alike will bring up Surah 812 of the Quran, and surah is just, um, well, basically the term used for a chapter in, in the Quran. But I'll read Surah 8, twelve as it appears in the Shakir version of the Quran. When your Lord revealed to the angels, I am with you, therefore make firm those who believe. I will cast terror into the hearts of those who disbelieve. Therefore strike off their heads and strike off every fingertip of them. Okay, so at first blush, it sounds pretty damning. It says right there, strike off the heads of those who don't believe. And people who are biased against Islam will quickly claim that there it is, a violent religion that proclaims you should brutally decapitate non-believers. But in fairness, on the other side of the argument, scholars and Islamic theologians will often claim that this passage is referring to a particular 7th century battle known as the Battle of Badr outside Medina, where the Muslims were outnumbered and won due to divine intervention in the eyes of believers, or at least due to the military strategic skill of Muhammad. So according to this interpretation, the quote-unquote unbelievers are the pagan tribes the Muslims were in conflict with at the time, and the surah shouldn't be taken as an edict to kill non-Muslims in general. And like I alluded to before, the Quran, like most so-called holy books, at times contradicts itself. There's parts of the Quran that seem to suggest that non-believers should be dealt with harshly, or they will be damned, such as, um, and here's kind of a, uh, Disturbing passage. Those who disbelieve our revelations, we shall expose them to the fire. As often as their skins are consumed, we shall exchange them for fresh skins, that they may taste the torment. And that's Sura 4, verse 56. Now, does this passage refer to those who disbelieve the tenets of Islam specifically, or the previous revelations of Christianity and Judaism as well? I don't know. Then there's other parts that speak about the commonality shared between the Abrahamic faiths, parts that seem to almost venerate or praise Christians and Jews, the latter, which the Quran refers to as children of Israel or followers of the book, meaning the Torah. And here's some passages along um, that vein. We, meaning Allah, gave the book, meaning the Torah, to the Israelites and bestowed on them wisdom and prophethood. We provided them with wholesome things and exalted them above the nations. And that's Quran Sora 45:17. And then we have, "We sent forth Noah and Abraham and bestowed on their offspring the children of Israel, prophethood and the scriptures, the Torah. and that's Sora 57:26. Then there's some very scary parts that speak very harshly of the Jewish people, or at least those who the Muslims were in conflict with at the time. Ignomity shall be their portion, referring to the Jews. Wheresoever they are found, they have incurred anger from their Lord, and wretchedness is laid upon them, because they disbelieved the revelations of Allah and slew the prophets wrongfully, because they were rebellious and used to transgress. That's Surah 111, verse 112 and thou wilt find them the Jews the greediest of mankind uh and that's Surah 11 verse 96 and that's especially ugly and uh of course when hearing that you might have a visceral re- a visceral reaction because it reminds us of that dangerous and long-standing stereotype regarding uh Jewish people and money um a stereotype that to some degree probably arose out of the fact that um in the Middle Ages, Christians, and I think perhaps uh, Muslims too, perhaps, uh, definitely Christians though, weren't supposed to lend money to one another, um especially with interest because it was considered usury. So medieval Jews kind of were uh, able to fill that vacuum. They were able to provide Uh, financial and banking and lending services um, that Christians were technically forbidden to provide to each other. And we all know um, this really ugly and dangerous stereotype eventually arose. But it's very nasty stuff. And as I said, in fairness... Uh, Maybe those harsh words are meant to be taken in the context of a certain time of strife with a certain Jewish community in Medina or something like that that the Muslims were in conflict with, but still it's very harsh and uh, the words are very inflammatory, and I think in part such contradictions are why people can twist or cherry-pick religious texts to meet their particular agenda or to reflect their particular worldview or bias. But um, it should be mentioned, though, in in fairness to uh, Islam, because nowadays in the modern world, we think of no more bitter enemies than the Muslims and the Jews. Um, And of course, we see that most poignantly um, between Israel and Palestine. And yet in the kind of enlightened golden age of Islam in the Middle Ages, uh, or perhaps even late uh, Dark Ages, um, there was this great time of learning and intellectual and scientific advancement in the Islamic world. There were Jewish teachers in Islamic universities, if uh, university is uh, an acceptable word in that context. Jews were allowed to do business in Muslim lands, and I think it's Cenk Uygur from the Young Turks who often talks about um, how when we had these kind of medieval diasporas or pogroms where um, the Jews were kind of, unless they were willing to convert, and I think the Spanish term was uh, conversos, um, they were driven out of Spain and uh, Portugal, I think, and Islam offered to take all of uh, Spain, I believe, Jews uh, in order to, you know, basically save them and give them opportunity. So there hasn't always been this bitter enmity between the Jewish people and Islam. There were actually these shining moments where um, Jewish people prospered in Islamic lands, and in some cases, like I just pointed out, where uh, Muslims even stepped in to try to aid Jews amidst um, the throes of Christian or uh, Catholic anti-Semitism. So I I think it was during the time of the Inquisition when um, Spain expelled the Jews unless they were willing to convert, and they fled to Portugal. There's a little passage from Wikipedia on the subject of uh, the history of the Jews in Portugal. In 1492, Spain expelled its Jewish population as part of the Spanish Inquisition. Okay, that's right. Tens of thousands of Spanish Jews subsequently fled to Portugal, where King John II granted them asylum in return for payment. However, the asylum was only temporary, after eight months, the Portuguese government decreed the enslavement of all Jews who had not yet left the country. In 1493, King John deported several hundred Jewish children to the newly discovered colony of Sao Tome, I probably butchered that, where many of them perished. Following John's death in 1494, the new king, Manuel I of Portugal, restored the freedom of the Jews, however, in 1497, under the pressure of the newly born Spanish state, through the clause marriage of Isabella, Princess of Astorias, the church, and also of part of the Christian people, King Manuel I of Portugal, decreed that all Jews had to convert to Christianity or leave the country without their children. Hard times followed for the Portuguese Jews with a massacre of 2,000 individuals in Lisbon in 1506 further forced deportations to São Tomei, where there is still a Jewish presence today, and the latter an even more relevant establishment of the Portuguese Inquisition in 1536. So you can see that um, the Jewish people have not had an easy history, man, from being uh, conquered and pushed around by um, Babylonians, Persians um, Seleucid, Sarians, um, Romans, uh, all the pogroms and diasporas of the, uh, the middle ages, obviously the modern nightmare of the Holocaust. I excluded Egypt to some degree because I think it, it's still a controversial issue what role, uh, the Jews played in ancient Egypt. Were they really slaves? Were they mercenaries? Did they actually build the have anything to do with the building of uh, pyramids or monuments? Um, and that's a very touchy, very complicated subject. Maybe someday I'll do a show on that. But you can see how um, the Jews were Driven out of Spain into Portugal, out of Portugal back into Portugal, persecuted again in Portugal. So, could, so what Jenk Huger is probably talking about is sometime during all this, the um, perhaps it was the the uh, Ottomans offered to take the Jews, and as Jenk says it, um, it probably wasn't just out of the goodness of their heart. Although they would be treated well, the Muslims probably also knew that they would benefit from integrating this Jewish populace into um, their society and their economy. Okay, well, here's a bit more from Wikipedia. <laughs> I love Wikipedia. I know you're not supposed to use it as a scholarly um, source, at least not formally. You're not supposed to cite it in uh, papers or uh, whatnot. But here we go. Influx of Sephardi Jews from Iberia. The number of native Jews was soon bolstered by small groups of Ashkenazi Jews that immigrated to the Ottoman Empire between 1421 through 1453. Among these new Ashkenazi immigrants was Rabbi Yitzhak Sarfadi, I think, a German-born Jew of French descent who became the chief rabbi of Adarna, I think, and wrote a letter inviting the European Jewry to settle in the Ottoman Empire, in which he stated, Turkey is a land wherein nothing is lacking And asking, is it not better for you to live under Muslims than under Christians? Imagine that being said today. Is it not better to live under Muslims than under Christians? The greatest influx of Jews into Asia Minor and the Ottoman Empire occurred during the reign of Mehmed, the conqueror's successor, Bayezid II, 1481-1512. to 1512. After the expulsion of the Jews from Spain and Portugal, the Sultan issued a formal invitation to Jews expelled from Spain and Portugal, and they started arriving in the empire in great numbers. A key moment in the judaic turkic relations occurred in 1492, when more than 150,000 Spanish Jews fled the Spanish Inquisition, many to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so, there you have it. Okay, and here's a small. Uh passage on banking and finance. In the 16th century, the leading financiers in Istanbul were Greeks and Jews. Many of the Jewish financiers were originally from Iberia and had fled during the period leading up to the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. Many of these families brought great fortunes with them. The most notable of the Jewish banking families in the 16th century Ottoman Empire was the Murano Banking House of Mendes, which moved to and settled in Istanbul in 1552 under the protection of Sultan Suleiman I the Magnificent. When Alvaro Mendez arrived in Istanbul in 1588, his reported to have brought with him 85,000 gold ducats. The Mendez family soon acquired a dominating position in the state finances of the Ottoman Empire and in commerce with Europe. So, when you read up on history, I mean, you learn some amazing things. So, a lot of people who haven't taken the time to look into this stuff. Are probably mind blown when they realize that Jews and Muslims haven't always been the bitterest of enemies. And there was a time when Muslims were saving Jews from Christians. Um, And I wish modern day, you know, fanatical Islamists, um, you know, people like ISIS, Al Qaeda, I'm not sure how much they know their own history of their own religion, if they could try to aim more for being like, Islam in that Golden Age, or to have this more inclusive or welcoming attitude to people of other faiths or no faith, and um, remember how Muslims and Jews once lived in relative harmony at times in the, uh, in, in the Middle Ages and centuries past. But anyway, I, I've gotten kind of off track, although this still, I think, in some way plays into the topic at hand but anyway um those kind of seemingly anti-semitic parts of the quran i'd read um which is why i wanted to try to play devil's advocate and show the more positive side of jewish muslim relations throughout history but um yeah it, it, it on face value nasty stuff oh yeah so i was talking about uh scriptural kind of contradictions that we find in most most man-made holy books. And because of such contradictions, it can be hard to tell exactly just what a religious text is demanding of its followers in certain matters. So does the Quran want infidels to be beheaded? Even so, is it just on the battlefield? Does it condone the decapitation of innocent hostages and well-meaning intrepid journalists? Um, I don't know. You know, I'm honestly still confused because despite what The faithful think it's obvious to me that religious texts are man-made and they do contain contradictions and they are open to wide interpretation. But I do know one thing that I believe to my core, despite whatever... Uh, any man-made religious text says, or no matter how you interpret said text, there's nothing noble about brutally executing the innocent, no matter what their creed or nationality happens to be. And for groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, you might attract some malcontents and psychopaths with your gory execution videos, but do you really think you're going to defeat or scare away the world's superpowers by brutally beheading people. All you do is make yourselves look like grotesque monsters on the world stage. Backwards, barbaric, and devoid of human decency. And once again, I wish they had the, the insight to be able to juxtapose their behavior. And I'm not saying that there wasn't barbarism in certain cases in the ancient Islamic world. Just as there's been plenty of barbarism Um perpetrated by Christians towards Muslims and towards Jews and towards others throughout the centuries. Um, Of course, things like the Crusades, Inquisitions, um, witch hunts, not figurative witch hunts like we use the word today, actual witch hunts, burning and killing people because um, superstitious individuals thought they were actually witches or even for perhaps more cynical and pragmatic reasons, like uh, the person accused of being a witch was your enemy, or you wanted their land, or something like that. Um, But I wish these modern terrorist groups would have the insight to juxtapose the ugliness of their own barbaric behavior with that kind of golden age of Islam when there was a strong emphasis on enlightenment, learning, and when there was a relative acceptance of people of other faiths. I'm not trying to sugarcoat things too much because I think there was often certain restrictions put on non-Muslims, things like how closely could they live to mosques, uh, could they own slaves, or something like that. Um, But there was this cooperation and this welcoming, relatively, of people of other faiths and creeds, including, as I just pointed out, Jews. Um, But I don't care what century you live in or what your faith is, um, as human beings, As self aware sentient animals who do, I believe, have a capacity that's innate for empathy and compassion, we should try to minimize our capacity or impulses towards tribalism, pettiness, warfare, and magnify our impulse or capacity for compassion and empathy. Human beings should be better than that. You know, it's the year 2014, we have iPhones. um, We have amazing medical technology. Uh, We've sent people to the moon. We can do all these amazing things. And yet as a whole, as a species, there's still members of our species who think it's all right to brutally saw another human being's head off. but as, as a species, we should be better than that. I don't know if we'll ever reach some kind of Star Trek-esque utopia <laughs> where um, humanity, for the most part, leaves its dark side in the past and we learn to live in uh, harmony. But I think we should, uh, we should aim for that. But with that being said, <laughs> this has been yet another episode of The Week in Doubt. You can like the show on Facebook. Um, follow the show on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel, even though I haven't uh, uploaded any any videos in a while. Listen to the show on Stitcher, subscribe through iTunes. You can rate the show on iTunes too, which would be helpful. Well, it'd be helpful if it was a good review. If you give me like one star, that would kind of suck. But anyway, um, you can also subscribe to the show through Podbean. If you're feeling generous, you can donate to the show through Podbean using the PayPal widget and I also have a Patreon account you just have to go to Patreon and search for Phil or Philip 1L Albertelli and I think you can like pledge like a dollar a month to the show or something like that. Uh let's see did I cover everything? Uh I think I did. All right, until next time, thanks for listening.